Now, I think willpower, just urging yourself to do something, is really, I don't know, not strong. I'll put it that way, not strong. Because I know personally, and I think I've heard from others, that willpower seems to be fickle. Hi, and welcome to the Solving Type 2 Diabetes Podcast. I'm Tom, and I'll be your host as I share what I'm doing in my daily life to solve my type 2 diabetes. Listen in as I share the food, movement, and tools that I'm using each day. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. For a full transcript or to follow the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast on social media, please head over to SolvingType2Diabetes.com for all those links and more. Now, on to the show. for joining me here for another episode of the Solving Type 2 Diabetes Podcast. I'm glad you're here. I appreciate your time and attention. So let's take a look at my last two weeks. I'm having very good blood sugar. I am staying on plan, which uh, generates very good blood sugar. My average blood sugar for these past two weeks has been 107. Now, 107 is much below the even pre-diabetes level, and I credit that to sticking with my eating plan. Now, you might remember that my eating plan is fairly simple. Right now, I think I'm shooting at about 18, 1900 calories a day. I'm not too terribly precise on that. What I am precise on is not eating more than 80 grams of carbohydrates on average each day and trying to get about 120 grams of protein each day. And then the balance of the intake is made up of fats. So I'm not exactly precise on the total calories or the total amount of fat, but that that upper limit of 120 grams for protein and the upper limit of 80 grams of carbohydrates is really serving me well. Now, in addition to my eating plan, I do get out on some good walks. I had some really nice walks in this past two-week period. And the weather has been, I would say, a little seasonably or unseasonably warm. It's been, I'd say, eh, averaging maybe in the mid-40s, upper 40s. And typically, for central Pennsylvania this time of year, it's usually in the high 30s. So I have been enjoying that temperature improvement, but we have had a lot of rain. So it's been hit or miss. I got drizzled on a couple of times, but I did get in some really nice walks nonetheless. In addition to that, of course, with my eating plan and my movement, I am taking medication. Now, I'm not taking the Manjaro anymore, as much honestly as I would like to be. But I'm not taking Manjaro anymore since it's about four months now, September, October, November, December, January, five months now, completely off of Manjaro for five months. But I still am taking the Farsiga and I'm taking the Metformin. And those two medications, while they're not heavy hitters, the Manjaro was, it is working well with my eating plan. So it's been a good two weeks with regards to my eating, medication, and movement. So what's on my needles? Just as a reminder, I did pick up knitting in this past year, something to do, some activity, 
I find it very mentally soothing. Of course, I make a mistake once in a while, and that's a little bit irritating. But generally speaking, I spend my time either listening to a podcast or maybe watching some YouTube or whatever. But I find that the time I spend doing that while knitting, it's I almost end it being refreshed rather than drained. I've been having fun with that. And I completed a blanket that I have been working on, believe it or not, since last June. It's one of those projects that I pick up in between other intentional projects. When I haven't quite started my next project, I can just quickly pick up this blanket. I finished it. It is for my youngest granddaughter, and she is three. So it ended up being 42 inches by 42 inches. And if you want to see pictures of my knitting, you can just look on my personal Instagram. And there's a link to that in the show notes. I don't put it in the show's Instagram, but it's on my personal Instagram if you're at all interested. But it's pink. It's using what's called Fisherman's Rib. And it has the appearance sort of brioche. It's a different technique, but the stitch pattern is Fisherman's Rib, if you're at all familiar with that. In addition to what I've been doing on my needles, I've been knocking around the idea of opening a local yarn store. I know, it's crazy, right? I'm retired. We have a very good and thankfully a steady retirement income. But I find it interesting. I've never been a small business owner, really. I did work as a travel agent for a couple years as an independent contractor. I did that while I was fully employed, nights and weekends. But this would be my first foray into being a business owner, an entrepreneur, if you will. But I've been looking into it a little bit, haven't done anything really official, except I did buy a domain name. That's secured if I actually decide to do this. But I, I'm i 60. Hopefully I still have a few more years with me. Hopefully my eating and my movement is adding to those years because type 2 diabetes, of course, will try and take away those years. I might just give this a shot. Anyway, more to come on that. I'll keep you posted as I always do. With regards to my sourdough update, I have been baking a lot. I baked two loaves just a couple days ago, and I am set, the dough's been mixed and it's hibernating, I like to call it, but I'm set to bake two more loaves the day after this episode comes out on Tuesday. And that's because I'm going to be out of town for a week. So we've been in the habit now for a couple of months of having fresh sourdough for every Sunday night dinner. We usually have my youngest daughter and her family over for Sunday night dinner. So because I'm going out of town, I've baked ahead a little bit. And it does freeze very well. We've experienced that already. Froze a loaf for a week or so and then take it out of the refrigerator. But there's no preservatives or anything else like that. It's simply water, flour, and a little bit of salt. And of course, the naturally occurring yeast that's in my starter. My starter is doing great, by the way. Very strong starter. So that'll be hibernating in the refrigerator while I'm away. And uh, I'll have some bread loaves uh, in the freezer for when I'm not here. Okay, let's take a look at the news. I've got a few nice ones here for you. I'm going to start this first one off here, and it's about snacking and ultra-processed food. It's entitled, Here's How to Tell 
if your favorite snack is actually an ultra-processed food. Now, we all snack from time to time. It's not all nice cuts of meat and freshly cooked vegetables. Once in a while, we have to get a snack either to hold us over or we're trying to eat on the run, something like that. And it's the thing of it is with these ultra-processed foods, you don't have to put, the food manufacturer does not have to put on the food label the processes it uses to make their products. But the fact of the matter is, if you're buying it at a store, if it has a very long shelf life, it's likely ultra-processed. Fresh, naturally occurring foods don't last 12, 15, 18 months. So if you pick up anything almost in a wrapper, like a protein bar or something like that, and you look at the expiration date, chances are it's probably a year in advance, at least a year in advance of when it was manufactured. So, you know, the processes they use, the hydrogenation, adding of salts and sugars and all that kind of stuff, allows it to be on the shelf longer, preservatives, things like that. A lot of times frozen dinners fall into this category, or absolutely a candy, cookies, pastries, things like that, things that are packaged in cellophane, don't require refrigeration, and would last weeks. I'm thinking Twinkie. Whereas a fresh-made donut, even, which is highly caloric, lots of carbs, lots of fat, but a fresh-made donut is basically flour, water, some sugar, and it would spoil after two, three days. Whereas a Twinkie, I don't think a Twinkie would spoil after years. I think you could orbit it around the sun and it would come back still fine. So those types of foods are often ultra-processed. And we have talked about before, and we do know how ultra-processed foods can negatively impact obesity, negatively impact our blood sugar. So it's certainly something to look out for. This next article says, I'm a doctor. You can reverse type 2 diabetes naturally by doing these two things. Now this is Dr. Jason Fung. And especially, I think, if you're familiar with a CrossFit or other types of Instagram popular diet and exercise routines that, you know, Dr. Fung has been around for a while. He's known for low sugar eating. And that's what he says, basically. If you cut out carbs, cut down dramatically on carbs like I do, and then also try a form of intermittent fasting, Dr. Fung claims that combination will dramatically lower your blood sugar. And in fact, in his data that he's reviewed, he found that by doing this successfully, 50% of the people can stop all medications. The other 50% of the people lower medications. So it's, it sounds successful. And it is what I do. As I think you know, I tend to eat from about noon to about 6 p.m. So that's definitely a form of intermittent fasting, only eating during a six-hour period of the day and then not eating about 18 hours of the day. So that's about intermittent fasting. And also, my level of carbohydrate intake is considered very low. Not ketogenic, but still very low. So those are the things he's suggesting. I thought that was interesting. His suggestion happens to be what I'm also doing. But I've run across Dr. Fung in the past, so it's not a surprise. Okay, five anti-inflammatory foods that can help prevent type 2 diabetes and Alzheimer's disease. Well, that's interesting. Prevent 
type 2 diabetes and also maybe prevent Alzheimer's according to what they say here. So I'm going to get to the short of it. Their top five foods that they're recommending in this article, and of course the whole article is available, the show notes have links to all the articles as always. The top five foods that this doctor recommends, it's Dr. Shaw, to include regularly in your eating is number one, leafy greens like kale or spinach. Number two, fatty fish like salmon or tuna. Snacking on nuts like walnuts and almonds. And then incorporating unsaturated fats like olive oil into your diet. He also says, and this would make six, that fruits like tomatoes and berries are great to incorporate into your meals. So those are the things that he recommends. Now the things he says to shy away from because they cause inflation, I'm sorry, they cause inflammation. I don't think this affects your spending policy, so we'll leave inflation out of this. But inflammation, Dr. Shaw explains that white bread, fried foods, red and processed meats, should be avoided. Also, sugary drinks and alcohol. Those are inflammatory. And he's saying it's this inflammation that has been shown to negatively affect type 2 diabetes and also Alzheimer's. That I thought was very interesting. All right. Diabetes medication class tied to lower risk of kidney stones. So, you know, nobody wants kidney stones. And it could be that medication you might be taking could help avoid kidney stones because type 2 diabetes does associate with an increased risk of kidney stones. Now, what they're talking about here are the sodium glucose contratransporter 2 SGLT2 inhibitors. And those are associated with a lower risk of developing kidney stones. So what are they? Well, it's like the Farsiga that I'm taking. It basically passes sugar out through the kidneys. So they're also saying here a side benefit is that could lower your risk of developing kidney stones if you happen to be on that medication for your type 2 diabetes. I thought that was interesting. Maybe I will not get kidney stones. I'm 60 and I've never had them so far, so who knows. Okay, finally, research discovers disrupted cellular function behind type 2 diabetes in obesity. So the disrupted function of cleaning cells in the body may help explain why people with obesity develop type 2 diabetes, while others do not. They always saw this link between obesity and type 2 diabetes. Now they believe they have a reason why that might be happening. So when you gain weight, you increase the breakdown of collagen. Collagen is like a structural protein that you need in your body because it makes room then for the growing fat cells within the fat on your, on your body. And collagen is like a natural building block in the body. It provides strength to cartilage, muscles, and skin. So there's a thing called macrophages. Basically, it's a type of white blood cell that's part of the immune system. And microphages are involved in the destruction of things like invading bacteria, but they're also used to engulf and digest damaged cells. So they're believing that this, this action of the microphages is deactivated in people who have obesity and insulin resistance, which we all know are often precursors to type 2 diabetes. So this disruption of the microphages in people who have obesity and insulin resistance 
could very well be, they believe anyway, the reason that by putting on more and more fat, you're also disrupting this microphage action to clean up these damaged cells, and that can help increase insulin resistance and lead to type 2 diabetes. So very good article here, just a news article, but they do link to the full study. And it was done at the University of Gothenburg, and I, I'm guessing that was in Germany. But also, a very good article, and take a look at that. The full link is in the show notes. So the topic this week, I mentioned this was going to be the topic when I was on the last episode two weeks ago. But our topic is, why does willpower sometimes fail? Now, I think willpower, just urging yourself to do something, is really, I don't know, not strong. I'll put it that way, not strong. Because I know personally, and I think I've heard from others, that willpower seems to be fickle. I've got together through internet research, and again, I'm no psychologist, but I put together here 10 reasons, or seven reasons, let's do seven, seven reasons why willpower can fail. Number one, limited mental energy. Since willpower is a limited source, it can get depleted, just like a bank account or anything else that's limited. Therefore, making decisions, resisting temptations, and exerting self-control require mental energy. And when you're out of mental energy, often at the end of a day, you don't have that power to make those good decisions that will help you stick to a plan. So that sort of leads to decision fatigue. The more decisions you have to make throughout the day, the more your willpower can be drained. Decision fatigue can occur when the quality of your decision-making declines as you have to make more and more choices throughout each day. And this can lead to impulsive or inconsistent behavior, making it difficult to stick to a plan. Also, lack of motivation. Motivation is not the same as determination or discipline. If you lack the intrinsic motivation or a strong reason to follow through with your plan, when you don't have a clear understanding of why you want to achieve these goals, it becomes easier to succumb to distractions or give in to instant gratification. That's why I always say that determination, following a plan, is better than waiting to be motivated because the motivation can leave you. Stress and emotional state. Obviously, a high level of stress, having negative emotions, or challenging life circumstances can simply deplete your energy, deplete, deplete your willpower, deplete your reasoning. And so when you're dealing with stress or emotional turmoil without a well-defined, easy-to-follow plan, it can be harder to risk, to risk uh, temptations that might come about. Also, lack of planning, a structure. If you don't have a plan, if you're just winging it, then you don't really have a clear roadmap to when you're not following it because you've never really clearly defined your plan. Then you are relying on willpower and in-the-moment decision-making, and that's much more difficult than having a plan with structure. You could set yourself up for failure by having overwhelming goals or expectations. Setting goals that are too ambitious Having an eating plan that's too strict, that can just set you up for failure. Because if things are not humanly possible, then they're not going to succeed. But if you can get it just good enough, that's often why you'll find better success. 
Also, if you lack support or accountability, like if you don't have some external person or agency or something to rely on, that's, I think, why some people like things like Weight Watchers or Overeaters Anonymous. They really rely on support and accountability. Because if you don't have that on your own, if you're just a one-person show, it can be harder to stick to it. And it's important to recognize simply that willpower is not an infinite source that can fluctuate over different circumstances. By understanding the factors that undermine willpower, the hope is perhaps you can develop strategies to overcome these challenges and increase your chances of sticking to a plan. Okay, that's all great. That's all well and good. Thanks, Tom, for those seven reasons why you might lose your willpower. But then what do you do? What do you do when your willpower isn't enough, when your willpower is failing you, or it has failed you frequently in the past? Okay, 10 things. Let's start. Number one, set clear and realistic goals. Start by clearly defining your goals and break them down into smaller, achievable tasks. Make sure your goals are realistic and aligned with your priorities. So, my eating plan, it's a simple, realistic daily goal. I don't talk about long-term weight. I don't talk about 90-day A1C. I talk about today, one day at a time. Today is enough. Carbohydrate limit, protein limit, movement. That's it. Very clear, very small goals that are achievable every day. Also, create a detailed plan. Maybe you want to write out like I do, write out what you're going to eat the following day. Very detailed. There's no decision making. After I finish my dinner and I'm not hungry, then it's easier to make out tomorrow's detailed eating plan based on what you have in the fridge, what you have in the cupboard, what's going to meet your food plan goals. Lay it out. You've completely eliminated all the decisions for the next day. Use a visual reminder. Put post-it notes around, sticky notes, wallpapers on your phone. Screenshot your eating plan for the day and make it your wallpaper on your iPhone or whatever you like to do. If you have a printer, maybe print it out. But make visual reminders available to you that you almost have to read them like right before you open the cupboard door. Find an accountability partner. Find a person. It could be, I don't know, your friend, a relative. Someone who understands what you're trying to do, that you're trying to improve your health, trying to not get sicker and sicker with this diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. Somebody who loves you, somebody who cares about you, even if you pay them to do it. And check in regularly. Share your progress and provide support to them. Break tasks into smaller steps. This is very similar to create a detailed plan. For my eating plan, I break down what I'm going to have for breakfast, which is my coffee and heavy cream, and then my lunch, my dinner, and a snack. And I consume all that about between 12, except for the coffee, I consume all that between 12 and 6. But don't just say maybe your total goal is under 80 grams of carbohydrates or whatever you choose for yourself, because I'm not your nutritionist. But instead of just saying that, maybe break that down into, into what you're having each meal. Use positive reinforcement. Give yourself little rewards. Now, I would not give yourself a reward of a pack of ho-hos, but maybe you buy a book you've been looking at. Maybe you go to the movies. Maybe you simply 
Spend some quiet time alone with no one else having demands on you. But treat yourself for your daily success. Of course, that comes along with practicing self-care. You need to take care of your physical and mental well-being, and that helps with the discipline and sticking to a plan. When you get enough sleep, you're eating well, you're having movement, and you engage in activities that help you relax, like I do with my knitting, that self-care will help you stick with a plan. Eliminate distractions. This could mean getting rid of the chips out of the house, getting rid of the cookies out of the house. One technique that I've used successfully is that while my wife still eats things like pretzels and chips and cookies, she gets them in single-serving packs. And maybe she only gets one or two little packs, and then maybe a week later gets one or two little packs again. She doesn't keep big family-sized bags of these things in the house because I'm going to end up eating it, or at least I'm going to be tempted to end up eating it, and therefore she's only going to get one or two little servings on her own anyway out of that big bag. So really cost-wise, while it's cheaper per serving to buy a big bag, it's going to cost the same for her to get her one or two little servings if she had bought them individually rather than having me bore through the majority of the big bag. It makes sense all around. Practice time management. Give yourself time for preparing your meals, eating your meals. Don't force yourself to eat on the run if possible. Finally, stay flexible and adapt. You're not perfect. Your eating plan isn't perfect. It's not meant to be perfect. Life is unpredictable. What you want to do is be 90% correct 90% of the time, and that'll be a tremendous improvement over perhaps what you're doing now. Sticking to your plan, whether it's eating or movement or medication, requires discipline and effort. It doesn't necessarily require motivation It doesn't necessarily require willpower. You owe yourself the discipline and effort to work your plan every day. All right, let's look at questions. We have a question this week. We have a question that came in from Marco. Actually, he's suggesting some really good things to consider here. He's suggesting some topics. So let's look at Marco's email that he sent in. And he contacted me, by the way, by going to the website, clicking on feedback, and then filling out the little form there. So Marco says, Hi, Tom. I appreciate the work you put into your show. It is inspiring and informative. I have a few topic suggestions. I suspect you have covered some of them. Number one, how to build muscle over 50 with type 2 diabetes. Number two, dealing with chronic pain related to metabolic syndrome. What about pains that stop you from doing cardio or resistance? When can we ignore pain versus when to respect it? The A1C impact of steel cut oats versus rolled. Discerning a good health information source from a poor one. Non-cholesterol, no, non-HGL cholesterol. What is it? When to follow up? And then finally, the Framingham study and its relevance to type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and general health. Best wishes, Mark. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that very much. And some of those topics, while very interesting, would be hard for me to recommend. I should not be telling you when to 
deal with pain or ignore it. I should not really be judging various health information sources as to whether or not they're good or not. Some of these are for your doctor. But I'll tell you what, Marco, I am going to adopt one of those, and we're going to talk about it next week. So what is next? I'm going to take a topic suggestion right here from Marco. Now, I have to make a disclaimer. I am not a physical coach. I'm not a a gym coach. I am certainly not your doctor or anything else. But next week, I will do some internet research, hopefully from good health information sources, on tips for building muscle. Now, Marco suggested people over 50 with type 2 diabetes, but I think I'm going to stick to general tips on building muscle that I can find during my searches. So that's coming next week, and I hope you join me for that. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast. I hope you found it valuable. Please follow and leave a five-star review as it helps other people find the podcast. By subscribing, you ensure you won't miss the next episode. You can always get a full transcript of the episode at SolvingType2Diabetes.com. There you will also find the links to leave feedback and links to follow on social media. I'm very interested in hearing from you with comments and suggestions. Thanks very much for listening. Please remember that everything I share is just from my own personal experience and should not be taken as medical or health advice. Please consult your own medical professionals. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only.